Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. We're going to talk prequels today because we both watched a prequel for the 80s classic Predator. And guess what? It wasn't trash. I'm Jeff Braun. Another prequel and sequel to a classic from years ago came out this week, but it's not a movie or a show. I'll explain what Heat 2 is. And lots of new movies out this week. We'll tell you about a couple of them because they look insane. But first, it's being called one of the best entries in the Predator series. Let's talk about Prey. There's something out there. I've never seen anything like it. I'm not frightened by a bear. It's not a bear. I just had to include it. This song's been stuck in my head all week just because of the title of this movie. Prey was released on Disney Plus in Canada last weekend. It's on Hulu in the U.S. And it's a bit of a shame because this would have been a good one to see in a movie theater, I think. Prey's a sequel to the 87 action movie Predator, which starred Arnold Schwarzenegger, Carl Weathers, Bill Duke, Jesse the Body Ventura, Shane Black, and more. And Predator's widely regarded as one of the best action movies of the 80s and its top-tier Schwarzenegger. It was followed by a sequel, Predator. Predator 2 in 1990 without Arnold, and there have been a couple of other sequels or reboots, The Predator and Predators, as well as a couple of tie-in movies with the Alien franchise. I haven't seen any of those sequels, but I really like the original. I rewatched it the day before I watched Prey. Uh, fun fact, Predator, the first one was also one of my grandma Ethel's favorite movies. Uh, I remember as a teenager coming home late one night, she was watching it, and it blew my mind because she was a sweet old lady, and I never in a million years would have imagined she engroyed a grizzly shoot him up like that. I asked, who's winning? And she just said, this Predator's going to kill them all. So now we have Prey, a good title, by the way, and it's a prequel in the sense that it's set long before Predator. It's set in the early 1700s, 300 years earlier. So, of course, all the people are different and the Predator alien is also different. So there's no real connection to the original other than the basic scenario, which is an alien comes to Earth to do some hunting of the local wildlife. In this case, it's a Comanche nation in the northern Great Plains, as well as some French trappers and some aggressive animals. And I would say that difference in civilizations and cultures because of the time difference really kinds of makes for a, a totally different dynamic in this movie because i mean this movie doesn't have like jacked up bros dropping f-bombs and telling dirty jokes like the first predator it has comanches going about their day-to-day -day business 300 years ago the hero in this one is a 20 year old girl naru played by amber midthunder she's aspirations to be a hunter in her tribe even though no one thinks she can do it but she's about to have, you know, the hunt of her life. And the story is basically the same as Predator. The alien is trying to kill the people while the people try to kill the alien. However, instead of machine guns and grenades, Naru has a hatchet and a bow. At the end of Predator, though, Schwarzenegger does have to rely simply on his cunning and some Ewok-inspired traps made of wood, rope, and rocks, which kind of puts him and Nauru on a similar playing field. The Predator has the heat vision once again, which is always cool, and he has that cloaking technology so no one can see him. That was a cool effect in the first movie, and an effect that actually still looks pretty good today. Here, it's obviously rendered even better, thanks to 35 years of visual effects improvements. And so it's a game of cat and mouse between Nauru and the Predator, and as you would imagine, anyone else in the movie is mostly there just to be an eventual bloodstain. The action is terrific. 
terrific. It's a really well-made movie, fun kills. And while it's incredibly violent, I didn't even really get grossed out, grossed out by it too much. The tension is also done extremely well. That was one of the distinguishing characteristics of the first movie. When it's quiet and still, and we're all just waiting for the predator to show up, you end up holding your breath for real. Uh, like the original Prey doesn't give the audience or any of the human characters any explanation as to what the Predator is or why he's come to Earth to kill people. Nauru as, is as in the dark about the whole thing as Arnold was. They just know if something is trying to kill you, you have to try to kill it first. Again, I haven't seen any of the sequels, so I don't know. Maybe they did explain everything about the alien in one of those. But I kind of just like thinking of it as an alien on vacation, kind of a safari situation where it's come to hunt some big game for sport. Besides the basic premise of the movie, Prey also has a few nods and callbacks to the original. Uh, I don't want to give any of those away, obviously. It's not essential, but I would recommend re-watching Predator 1 beforehand. You'll get a lot more out of Prey, I think, if you do it that way. And then, absolutely, definitely check out Prey. It's a lot of fun. Four couch cushions out of five for Prey by me, Brett. Brett, uh, it's available now on Disney Plus. Or what do you think? I really liked it. This was a pleasant surprise because when I first heard they were doing this and first saw the trailer, I thought, ugh. Here we go. They're trying. Yeah. They're trying again with the Predator saga because I have watched all of the sequels. Predator Two is okay. It's it's kind of cheesy and campy because they they go from the jungle to Los Angeles and Danny Glover is in it instead of Arnold Schwarzenegger. He plays a cop who is hunting him. And Predator Two is pretty good, but it, I mean nothing touches the original. Then you had Predators which came out, I don't know, 10, around 10 years ago, I think. And then The Predator, which came out more recently. That's terrible. Predators is okay. The Predator is brutal. And uh, the Alien versus Predator movies are fun, but they're dumb. So this is the first one that actually took itself seriously since the first Predator. And... I really enjoyed that. Like the, the the photography, the cinematography in this film was not what I expected at all. Like it is beautifully shot. There are some scenes that made me feel like I was watching something like The Revenant, right? Like uh, some crazily beautiful shots. So I, I'm glad they took advantage of the landscape and gave us some great stuff to look at. They weren't just interested in telling a simple story. They wanted to make a beautiful film and um, there are a few things, though, that I was kind of like, you know, pretty tough to believe that an interstellar space hunter with the strength to hoist a grizzly bear over its head wouldn't land a single hit on Nauru. Like, I get that she's a skilled hunter, but uh, come on. And I did like her arc in the sense that, yeah, she can hunt and she's got some skills, but she makes mistakes early on she's not as skilled as she thinks she is she learns some pretty painful lessons but then when she has to she steps up for her tribe to take on this monster i would say i think i found it maybe even a little too long at it's only an hour 40 but it just felt a little long and maybe that's because it's hard to like we know the formula we know what's go even though we don't know this specific story we know what's going to happen you know alien hunter shows up Starts picking everyone off. Hero eventually fights the hunter, and that's that. But they still managed to do a pretty good job, I think, at making it suspenseful and tense in spite of the fact that we know that exact formula. And there is um, there is a ridiculous tie-in. I'm not going to say what it was, but there is something that pops up 
at the end of Predator 2 that is also featured in this movie, and I'm failing to see the connection. Like, I don't <laughs> just, I, I would need to, to do a deeper dive on how those dots connect, and I don't really care that much. Uh, but I, I did very much enjoy this movie. This was a big, big surprise. It's got 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, I'm going to give it, yeah, you know what? I'll, get, I'll go with four couch cushions out of five as well. I thought this was, uh, this was for a streaming movie. This was good stuff. That's it. That's exactly it. Because I, I thought that too. Like Netflix has put the stink of uh, something on there. You know what I mean? Like you hear it's a streaming movie and it's like, oh, not good enough for movie theaters. That is absolutely the first thing I think of now. I mean, the last couple of years, because of the, you know, theaters were closed, that was different or whatever for a lot of those movies. But if it's like they didn't put this in theaters on purpose, they didn't, they must not have a lot of confidence in this movie. But yeah, this one was, it's probably the, one of the best streaming movies we've seen so far. And again, you're right. The cinematography is fantastic. It definitely should have been in theaters. And just to your point about uh, the thing not landing a single hit on Naru, even in Predator 1, Schwarzenegger gets hit. He gets like pretty serious battle damage in that movie. So uh, so it is kind of weird that they didn't, uh, you know, have her like take a shot in the shoulder or something. Yeah, yeah, like Arnold Schwarzenegger was beaten within an inch of his life by the Predator in that movie. Um, but still, it was, I thought it was thrilling, exciting, good stuff. So Prey, that's out on Disney+. Plus. We actually had lots of streaming movies come out last week because Disney Plus also put out the Lego Star Wars Summer Vacation. So you've got a crossover with the Vacation universe. Um, Prime had that 13 Lives movie about that a soccer team that was trapped in a cave and they had to go rescue them. Apple TV Plus had a cartoon called Luck, which looks like a lot of fun. And Netflix had that Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which is, uh, I guess there's a television show called Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And this was just the movie. So lots of new streaming movies last week, but we both watched Prey. We both liked it. And since it's a prequel, let's talk prequels, our favorite prequels. Next, you're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. We both reviewed the movie Prey in the last segment. We both gave it four couch cushions out of five. And it, of course, is the newly released on Disney Plus prequel to the movie Predator from the 80s. And it got us thinking about what other prequels do we really like that we've seen along the way. And we want to talk about a bunch of them now. And to top my list, of course, are, well, the movies from this franchise. This is a world that doesn't play by your rules. <laughs> like it or not, you and your friends are a part of it now. I don't have friends. I got family. <laughs> and the part of the world that he's talking about, of course, is the Fast and Furious world. And Fast and Furious's 4, 5, and 6 are all prequels to... Fast and Furious 3, Tokyo Drift, and then the and then the timeline catches up, and then 7, 8, and 9 are after number 3. So it is just insane what they have done with the timeline to this series, and all because uh, the character of Han in, Furious, in Fast and Furious 3, Tokyo Drift, they liked that guy, but they killed him off in that movie, and they thought, well, how can we bring that guy back after we've killed him off? And so they said, well, four, five, and six will just be prequels to that, so he can be in those. And then he was gone, but then in nine, he came back anyways because, oh, I didn't really die, so it wasn't necessary in the first place. So there's some unnecessary prequels, as it turned out. It was just for fun, uh, but it's been, it's just the Fast and Furious 
uh, cinematic universe, whatever those guys do with all their crazy business just makes me laugh. It's so entertaining. So uh, timeline shenanigans, go for it. A couple of other notable prequels I wanted to mention were The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. It's uh, Sergio Leone's uh, Western starring Clint Eastwood, of course. It was the third movie released in the trilogy with A Fistful of Dollars and For a Few Dollars More, but apparently The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly takes place earlier than those two movies. I don't even know that there's really anything in those movies aside from maybe cues about the Civil War that would uh, tip you off to something like that because, I mean, honestly, Clint Eastwood doesn't have a name. He says like five words and through all three of those movies. But there you go. It apparently is a prequel. I actually only learned that today. The Godfather Part 2, that's uh, probably the best prequel of all time. That movie is part prequel, part sequel uh, to The Godfather Part 1. Um, I would also want to mention Red Dragon from 2002, which is a prequel to Silence of the Lambs. And I had nightmares after Silence of the Lambs. I don't know why I ever watched Red Dragon, but I've seen it a couple of times, and I really like it. That one, of course, stars uh, Ed Norton as Will Graham and Ray Fiennes as the Red Dragon that uh, Norton's trying to catch. And, of course, we get an assist there from Anthony Hopkins. It also stars Emily Watson and Philip Seymour Hoffman in just a terrific role. And he gets about the most grisly, disturbing death I've seen of any character in all times where he's a... Well, if you've seen the movie, you know what I mean. I don't even know that I want to talk about it on the radio right now. And uh, also on my list, I put X-Men First Class, Brett, because um, when they youngified all the X-Men characters, uh, that was just sort of the shot of adrenaline that series needed because after X-Men 3, that had all kind of petered out. And then, of course, they get to keep the Wolverine just for you know, short bursts here and there because uh, he's an ageless guy. So Hugh Jackman got to play him across all worlds. So uh, that's my list. I left one out of the list that uh, you can see there on your screen because I know you're about to bring it up as well. Yeah, that's right. I, I should watch Red. I don't know that I've ever seen Red Dragon. Um, now that you mentioned it, I've only just in the last few years finally watched the second film, which was Hannibal. And oddly enough, I've seen Hannibal Rising, which is also a prequel, which is not bad, but um I don't think I've seen Red Dragon, so I will look that up. But my favorite prequel, this immediately jumped to mind. They have no idea we're coming. Take hold of this moment. The force is strong. Make ten men feel like a hundred. We'll take the next chance. And the next time. You're all rebels, aren't you? Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Still my favorite Star Wars film. It is the prequel I didn't know the galaxy needed. When I heard they were doing this story, I thought, who cares? Like the spies who stole the plans for the Death Star? Like, do we really need a feature film for that? Yes, we do. It's awesome. And I think I might actually watch that again tonight. Also, I just uh, gave my long uh, soliloquy last week about the Clone Wars television show, which was magnificent. And it helped, quite frankly, to legitimize the, the prequel films for Star Wars. And now those movies and that show are kind of beloved by a generation that grew up with those as their Star Wars movies. So that's kind of cool. Andor, by the way, who was in Rogue One, Cassian Andor, that show starts on September 21st on Disney Plus and looks pretty good. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, technically a prequel set in 1935. Raiders of the Lost Ark was set in 1936. 
Uh, not as good as Raiders, but still a fun movie, yeah? Oh, absolutely. And and is there anything in that movie that tells you that it's set in 35 while the other one's in 36? I never knew that until a couple of years ago. That was the one I skipped on my list, by the way, so we both had this one. So, yeah, I, I think I heard someone say they only made it a prequel just so it wouldn't seem like he was cheating on the Marion from Raiders. Oh! With the, the girl in the Temple of Doom. I think they. I think there's a reveal at the beginning, somewhere at the beginning of the movie, where it says where they are and what year. I think. Okay. I've only seen those movies like 25 times. You'd think. I, <laughs> I know, right? I like, remember that detail. I just watched them like within the last two months, maybe the last month. I can't believe I uh, forgot about that. I'll just quickly mention. Well, you know what? Let's just press pause and finish this conversation in a moment because we do. There are a couple of television shows uh, that we want to mention, particularly one that is approaching its series finale next week, and then a couple of huge prequel series that are going to make their debuts on HBO and on Prime in the next month and a bit. So, very exciting stuff coming up. You are listening to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett, he's Jeff, we are the Couch Potatoes. In a couple of minutes, Jeff is going to tell you about Heat 2. I'm excited to hear about that. But we're talking prequels today because we both watched Prey, which is a prequel to Predator, now available on Disney+. Plus. We both liked it, both gave it four couch cushions out of five. So we're talking about our favorite prequels. We just had a couple more to rattle off here, both in film and television form. Um, I already mentioned that Rogue One one of my, is my favorite prequel ever. This one also turned out to be fantastic. Let me tell you something. Bumblebee from the Transformers came out a few years ago set before the events of all of the Michael Bay movies, and it's the first... Like, look, I enjoy the, that first Transformers movie, but the sequels got progressively more stupid, and the Transformers never quite looked like Transformers, and Bumblebee is the first one that gets it right, and it, it sort of it, it did a better job at honoring the legacy of the Transformers, and it was just a, it was way more fun. Like, it was just a fun, good, feel-good movie that I really enjoyed, and uh, I'm sad that I failed to watch it before it disappeared from Netflix or Prime or whatever streaming it was on, because I think now it's probably on Paramount+, Plus, which I don't have. Uh, so Bumblebee is great, and this one I was surprised to actually learn. It, I forgot this was a prequel. <laughs> Paranormal Activity 2. It's actually set two months before the uh, the events of the original, and I think I actually liked Paranormal Activity 2 better than the first one. I mean, the first one was the super low-budget one, and the, just made by some like normal people. The second one was when the studios got involved, but it was still good. Kong Skull Island was pretty cool, and uh, Rotten Tomatoes actually has a thing right now on their homepage asking the question, was the Hobbit trilogy really necessary and I guess they're, they're talking about that since the Amazon Lord of the Rings prequel series starts next month. You've got Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon. That starts soon, August 21st, I think. And then, of course, Better Call Saul wraps up. What, Monday? The, the series Monday, wraps oh. up. 
I'm I'm on the edge of my seat waiting for it. I haven't looked this forward to a, a finale uh, in in a long time. So uh, hopefully it's a good one. I'm sure the you know the negative Nellies will be out there saying worst finale ever moments after it ends. But I think I think they're gonna land this plane just fine, Brett. Yeah, they they have stuck at the landing. We have no reason to believe this creative team is gonna drop the ball on this one. Another prequel, Spartacus, Gods of the Arena, and this prequel was almost born out of necessity because the main actor who played Spartacus in season one, he got sick. I'm um, just looking up his name. I can't remember it off the top of my head. Andy Whitfield. He did such a great job of playing Spartacus in the first season of that series. But then he got sick and he eventually died uh, from cancer. And uh, so they, they made this prequel series in the meantime just to fill some time. And they eventually tied it back to the primary story. And they did a really good job with it. Uh, Bates Motel was also an excellent prequel to Psycho, of course. Uh, four or five seasons of that on A&E. That was a great show. You mentioned Red Dragon. Hannibal, the TV show on NBC. Loved that. Mm. And uh, who could forget the Muppet Babies? <laughs> Do you remember the <laughs> Muppet Babies cartoon? Yeah, yeah. That was a great cartoon. Yeah, I loved that. Loved that so much. So yeah, lots of tremendous prequels out there. And uh, I was actually pleased to, to think about how many I enjoy, because whenever we hear prequel or reboot or whatever, you think, oh, this is going to be so bad. And uh, turns out there's a lot of really good, really good stuff out there. So um, Heat 2, is this a prequel or sequel? What's the deal well, here? I will say it is It is a prequel of sorts, uh, and it's one of my favorite movies, a prequel to 1995's Heat. You search for the scent of your prey, and then you hunt them down. It keeps me sharp. Where I gotta be. In a world where violence is wholesale. The bank is worth the risk. You're up. There's a saga waiting to unfold. If I'm there and I gotta put you away, you are going down. You will not get in my way for a second. Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Val Kilmer, Heat, rated R. As you may recall, Heat was an epic crime movie starring Pacino and De Niro as a cop and a criminal. It had the famous scene of them in a diner together, the first time they'd ever appeared on screen together because they were both in The Godfather Part Two. We talk about that. That's a prequel and a sequel at the same time. But De Niro and that was in the prequel part, and Pacino was in the sequel part, so they didn't share any screen time. So they're first on screen together in Heat. Val Kilmer, of course, also in it. I had the DVD for years. I rarely watch it, though, because it's nearly three hours long. But then a few years ago, I did rewatch it, and I just fell in love with it all over again, even more than uh, when I first saw it in theaters. So now I watch it about once a year or so. And I did just rewatch it a couple of weeks ago because this week saw the release of Heat 2, the novel. It's a book. It's written by Michael Mann, the writer-director of the movie Heat, and Meg Gardner, who's an accomplished crime novelist. And it is both a prequel and a sequel to the movie, covering uh, things in the story from 1988 through the year 2000, and of course the movie in 1995. Uh, and Mann hopes to turn it into a movie at some point. I imagine he has to recast everybody because it's set you know, just before and just after the movie. And of course, Pacino and De Niro are simply too old for that right now, even if they used Scorsese's magic de-aging machine from The Irishman. That's not going to cut it to make uh, either of those guys look like 1988 versions of themselves. Uh, I, I did buy the book just yesterday. I have not yet started it, uh, started it um, because 
I just bought it yesterday. I haven't had time to. It is getting great reviews, and I am excited to dig in. So maybe I'll have a review for that down the road sometime. I'm not putting a timeline on it because I am notoriously slow at getting around to my books. The stack of movies we have to watch that we never get around to, the stack of books is even bigger and takes even longer to get through. I mean, come on. But to that end, I have read a couple of books in the last year, movie books, and I want to give a couple of recommendations uh, right now. Since we're talking about books, I picked three of my favorites. First up, a classic as far as making of movies books go. It's called The Jaws Log by Carl Gottlieb. Now, Gottlieb is in the movie Jaws. He plays the reporter for the town paper. He was also one of the screenwriters on the movie. Specifically, he was the screenwriter on staff during the shooting of the movie. So he was there the whole time while Steven Spielberg was making what turned out to be his first of several masterpieces. And Gottlieb has a lot of great stories to tell because that production famously did not run very smoothly at all. It was plagued with technical problems regarding the mechanical shark. There was a town full of people who were skeptical on day one and some of whom turned downright hostile as the production went along. Uh, you remember on The Simpsons when they tried to make the Radioactive Man movie in Springfield and the mayor and everyone else kept gouging everyone, on the producers of the movie. It, it was like that a little bit in real life for the Jaws production. And of course, there were all the problems that come from trying to shoot a movie on the open ocean. Gottlieb was there for all of it and taking notes. The Jaws log is mostly his journal from the time they were making the movie in the mid-70s. It is annotated with some uh, modern footnotes and he's edited parts here and there where his account of his recollection may have differed from someone else's, that sort of thing. I love Jaws. I love all the stories about the making of that movie. So the book was right up my alley. And Gottlieb is a good writer. Obviously, he wrote on the movie and he doesn't have any sort of axe to grind. He appears to have mostly enjoyed his work on the shoot. So you can accept what he says at face value there. So that's the Jaws log. Next up, a book about the making of the Coen Brothers movie, Fargo. It's called A Lot Can Happen in the Middle of Nowhere. It's by a guy named named Todd Melby. Uh, Fargo's my favorite movie, so this one was a no-brainer for me. This book came out just last year. I bought it right away. Melby's a journalist and a film buff from Minneapolis. Fargo is one of his favorite films as well. He did pretty extensive research. He talked to a lot of people involved in the production, many of whom are native Minnesotans, and he got a lot of great stories out of them. The Coens uh, are famous for their smooth running production. So unlike the Jaws book, this book doesn't have a lot of disaster stories other than the weather. Fargo is set in the winter, but they had the opposite problem with the weather that you would expect instead of a bunch of storm delays. They were shooting this movie in one of the warmest winters and decades in the area, and they struggled to find snow, which of course was absolutely necessary. They made a lot of it on their own. Looks great, by the way. Uh, Fargo, I think, is the best depiction of winter I've ever seen on film. And I guess Minnesotans know how to make manufactured snow look like real snow. They also did a lot of driving. They had to chase some snow almost all the way up to Canada. It turns out they shot some stuff about 20 minutes from the town I grew up in. And they shot one scene in a small Minnesota town where an uncle of mine actually lives. So that just adds to my attachment to the film. Mostly you get a real sense that a lot of the actors and crew members from North Dakota and Minnesota who really came together and how they just crushed, just crushed it. You'd be surprised the amount of thought that someone with two lines puts into their performance in that movie. And then, of course, we also learned where the infamous wood chipper came from and where it ended up. Worth a read right there. So good stuff on the Fargo book. And then finally, I wanted to talk about the book that I'm currently reading. I'm almost finished. It's called Made Men, The Story of Goodfellas by Glenn Kenny. 
Kenny's a New York film critic. He used to write for Premier Magazine back in the day. That was my favorite movie magazine of the 90s and early 2000s. He's incredibly smart about movies. And if you go to his blog or read some of his old reviews, you can see that he could be very wordy and very high-minded. And, uh, you know, for a lunkhead like me, some of that can be hard to process. But not here in the Goodfellas book. He still writes very smartly, but it's accessible without being dumbed down, if that makes sense. He's just that good a writer. He can sort of calibrate his style to fit his needs for whatever he's working on. The book begins with a couple of chapters about pre-production and how Goodfellas got rolling. And then the bulk of the book, he just goes scene by scene throughout the whole movie and writes about the shooting of that particular scene, interviewing various cast and crew who were involved. He writes about what the scene means or what inspired Scorsese to do specific things in the scene, just sort of whatever information he has dug up about it. And because Kenny has been embedded in the New York film community for decades, he gets a lot of information. It's a great format. The entries for each scene can vary from just a couple of paragraphs to several pages. It's kind of easy for bite-sized reading as well. So those are my book recommendations if you're looking for something to read uh, for the rest of the summer. The Jaws Log by Carl Gottlieb, A uh, Lot Can Happen in the Middle of Nowhere, The Untold Story of the Making of Fargo, and Made Men, The Story of Goodfellas. So there you go. And if you're interested, by the way, in sequels to Fight Club, because the movie, of course, was based uh, it was based on a book, well, the author has since written Fight Club 2 and Fight Club 3 in graphic novel format. And a buddy of mine has read both of them, and he really, really liked them. And he loves, like, reveres the original Fight Club movie. So he, if he says the sequels are good, that's about the best recommendation I give can give for that. But that Jaws log sounds fun, so I might have to check that out one day. In a moment, though, we're going to tell you about a couple. Of, there are lots of new movies out this weekend, but there are a couple that we just had to put on your radar because they look completely bonkers. Details next. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are The Couch Potatoes. Six new movies out this weekend, five of them in theaters and one of them on Netflix. Uh, at least that's notable. So we wanted to point out a couple of these movies, and we're going to start in the theaters because this one just looks nuts. I watched the trailer for the first time today. It almost certainly will be a completely wild ride on the big screen. It's called Fall. The B-67 TV tower. We haven't climbed since. Becky, if you don't confront your fears, you are always going to be afraid. <gasps> Let's do it. Let's climb your stupid tower. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> So friends, Becky and Hunter like to climb things, and they decide they're going to climb an abandoned radio tower that's 2,000 feet tall, but then... wouldn't have a movie if the ladder didn't break off. So they're 2,000 feet in the air on top of this tower in the middle of nowhere with no way out. Just watching the trailer for this was pretty incredible. Likely a vertigo nightmare for many. Uh, but if you need an adrenaline blast, fall looks like the ticket. It looks nuts. And this next movie, which I also just heard of for the first time today, it's out on Netflix this weekend. It looks I, insane. It's gonna be a hot one in Los Angeles. So it's on the agenda today. Like every day. What are you doing in my room? Hunting vampires. 
Jamie Foxx is a vampire hunter, and so is Snoop Dogg. Vampire hunting is a business. Cut next and cash your checks. <laughs> uh, Fox plays a working dad who wants to provide for his daughter. His job is cleaning pools in San Fernando Valley, but his real source of income is from being a vampire hunter as part of an international union of vampire hunters, of course. Dave Franco is also in it, and the trailer says, from the guys who taught John Wick to kick butt, the action looks fun. It looks pretty gory, though, so watch out for that. Day shift. And all they are is murdering. Does not eclipse, new moon, breaking dawn, point one. It ain't like that, all right? Why do you know the names to all the specific Twilight films? What? And what's your gripe with breaking dawn part two? It's the exciting conclusion of the whole Twilight saga. Welcome to the day shift, mother... <laughs> Okay, so those movies look crazy. There are, like you said, there are another four movies out in theaters. There's something called Bodies, 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 which is getting excellent reviews. It's uh, apparently it's a really good Who Done It. So I like a good Who Done It. Diane Keaton stars in a movie called Mac and Rita, getting brutal reviews. Emily the Criminal, this one's getting great reviews, starring Aubrey Plaza. And then uh, Landmark exclusive, or Landmark Cinemas has an exclusive. It's a cartoon, Gulliver Returns. So lots to pick from uh, this weekend. And there also is something else that you're looking forward to, Jeff. Yeah, it's a new TV series based on the movie A League of Their Own. And as you hear from Jason Nathanson, it goes a little deeper than the movie could. The 1992 movie A League of Their Own is a groundbreaking classic, but the new series explores storylines of sexuality and race untouched by the film. We're here for the tryouts. I don't think you understand. This is the All-American League. We're pretty All-American. Executive producer Destra Tedros-Ref tells me she couldn't ignore the stories that are based on real women. Like, so much of the league was queer... Um, there was such a vibrant, like, so much vibrant black baseball. And E.P. Will Graham says one thing didn't change. The humor and heart and flawed characters. A League of Their Own hits Prime Video Friday. The movie's one of my favorites. It's an all-time sports movie, so I'm definitely going to check out this uh, show. I think the first three episodes are out this weekend, so we can talk about that a bit more next week. All right, and I'll see if I can check out this Day Shift movie. I'm very curious about that, and I'm... uh... I might have to go see Fall on a big screen. I still have to see Thor, so maybe I'll do like a double feature. I'll go see Thor, and then I'll go see Fall, and I can finally tell you what I... No? You're out? No, I said go see Nope. No. Nah. Not a Nope? Nah, I don't (laughs) think so. I I can't watch this Fall, no. I'm the Vertigo type, so that is a hard pass. That's all the time we've got. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. Remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother.